Introduction of On War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Introduction. The Germans interpret their new national colours, black, red, and white, by the saying, Der Nacht und Blot zur Licht, through night and blood to light, and no work yet written conveys to the thinker a clearer conception of all that the red streak in their flag stands for than this deep and philosophical analysis of war by Clausewitz. It reveals war stripped of all accessories as the exercise of force for the attainment of a political object unrestrained by any law save that of expediency, and thus gives the key to the interpretation of German political aims, past, present, and future, which is unconditionally necessary for every student of the modern conditions of Europe. Step by step, every event since Waterloo follows with logical consistency from the teachings of Napoleon, formulated for the first time some twenty years afterwards by this remarkable thinker. What Darwin accomplished for biology, generally Clausewitz did for the life history of nations nearly half a century before him. For both have proved the existence of the same law in each case, viz. the survival of the fittest, the fittest as Huxley long since pointed out not necessarily being synonymous with the ethically best. Neither of these thinkers was concerned with the ethics of the struggle, which each studied so exhaustively. But to both men the phase or condition presented itself neither as moral nor immoral, any more than are famine, disease, or other natural phenomena, but as emanating from a force inherent in all living organisms, which can only be mastered by understanding its nature. It is in that spirit that, one after the other, all the nations of the continent, taught such drastic lessons as Koningratz and Sieden, have accepted the lesson with the result that today Europe is an armed camp and peace is maintained by the equilibrium of forces and will continue just as long as this equilibrium exists and no longer. Whether this state of equilibrium is in itself a good or desirable thing may be open to argument. I have discussed it at length in my War in the World's Life, but I venture to suggest that no one would a renewal of the era of warfare be a change for the better as far as existing humanity is concerned. Meanwhile, however, with every year that elapses, the forces at present in equilibrium are changing in magnitude. The pressure of populations, which have to be fed, is rising, and an explosion along the line of least resistance is, sooner or later, inevitable. As I read the teaching of the recent Hague Conference, no responsible government on the continent is anxious to form in themselves that line of least resistance. They know only too well what war would mean, and we alone, absolutely unconscious of the trend of the dominant thought of Europe, are pulling down the dam which may, at any moment, let in on us the flood of invasion. Now no responsible man in Europe, perhaps, least of all in Germany, thanks us for this voluntary destruction of our defences, for all who are of any importance would very much rather end their days in peace than incur the burden of responsibility which war would entail, 
but they realize that the gradual dissemination of the principles taught by Clausewitz has created a condition of molecular tension in the minds of the nations they govern, analogous to the critical temperature of water heated above boiling point under pressure, which may, at any moment, bring about an explosion which they will be powerless to control. The case is identical with that of an ordinary steam boiler, delivering so-and-so many pounds of steam to its engines, as long as the envelope can contain the pressure, but let a breach in its continuity arise, relieving the boiling water of all restraint, and in a moment the whole mass flashes into vapour, developing a power no work of man can oppose. The ultimate consequences of defeat no man can foretell. The only way to avert them is to ensure victory, and again, following out the principles of Clausewitz, Victory can only be ensured by the creation in peace of an organization which will bring every available man, horse, and gun, or ship and gun if the war be on the sea, in the shortest possible time and with the utmost possible momentum upon the decisive field of action, which in turn leads to the final doctrine formulated by von der Goltz in excuse for the action of the late President Kruger in 1899. The statesman who knowing his instrument to be ready, and seeing war inevitable, hesitates to strike first, is guilty of a crime against his country. It is because this sequence of cause and effect is absolutely unknown to our members of Parliament, elected by popular representation, that all our efforts to ensure a lasting peace by securing efficiency with economy in our national defences have been rendered nugatory. This estimate of the influence of Klutzowitz's sentiments on contemporary thought in continental Europe may appear exaggerated to those who have not familiarized themselves with M. Gustave de Bon's exposition of the laws governing the formation and conduct of crowds. I do not wish for one minute to be understood as asserting that Clausewitz has been conscientiously studied and understood in any army, not even in the Prussian, but his work has been the ultimate foundation on which every drill regulation in Europe, except our own, has been reared. It is this ceaseless repetition of his fundamental ideas to which one half of the male population of every continental nation has been subjected for two to three years of their lives which has turned their minds to vibrate in harmony with its precepts, and those who know and appreciate this fact at its true value have only to strike the necessary chords in order to evoke a response sufficient to overpower any other ethical conception which those who have not organized their forces beforehand can appeal to. The recent setback by the socialists in Germany is an illustration of my position. The socialist leaders of that country are far behind the responsible governors in their knowledge of the management of crowds. The latter had not long before, in 1893 in fact, made their arrangements to prevent the spread of socialistic propaganda beyond certain useful limits. As long as the socialists only threatened capital, they were not seriously interfered with, for the government knew quite well that the undisputed sway of the employer was not for the ultimate good of the state. The standard of comfort must not be pitched too low if men are to be ready to die for their country. But the moment the socialists began to interfere seriously with the discipline of the army, the word went round, and the socialists lost heavily at the polls. If this power of predetermined reaction to acquired ideas can be evoked successfully in a manner of internal interest only, in which the obvious interest of the majority of the population is so clearly on the side of the socialist, 
it must be evident how enormously greater it will prove when set in motion against an external enemy where the obvious interest of the people is from the very nature of things as manifestly on the side of the government and the statesmen who failed to take into account the force of the resultant thought-wave of a crowd of some seven million men all trained to respond to their ruler's call would be guilty of treachery as grave as one who failed to strike when he knew the army to be ready for immediate action as already pointed out it is to the spread of Clausewitz's ideas that the present state of more or less immediate readiness for war of all european armies is due and since the organization of these forces is uniform this more or less of readiness exists in precise proportion to the sense of duty which animates the several armies where the spirit of duty and self-sacrifice is low the troops are unready and inefficient where as in prussia these qualities by the training of the whole century have become instinctive troops really are ready to the last button and might be poured down upon any one of her neighbours with such rapidity that the very first collision must suffice to ensure ultimate success a success by no means certain if the enemy whoever he may be is allowed breathing time in which to set his house in order an example will make this clearer in eighteen eighty seven germany was on the very verge of war with france and russia at that moment her superior efficiency the consequence of this inborn sense of duty surely one of the highest qualities of humanity was so great that it is more than probable that less than six weeks should have sufficed to bring the french to their knees indeed after the first fortnight it would have been possible to begin transferring troops from the rhine to the Niemen. and the same case may arise again but if france and russia had been allowed even ten days warning the german plan would have been completely defeated france alone might then have claimed all the efforts that germany could have put forth to defeat her yet there are politicians in england so grossly ignorant of the german reading of the napoleonic lessons that they expect that nation to sacrifice the enormous advantage they have prepared by a whole century of self-sacrifice and practical patriotism by an appeal to a court of arbitration and the further delays which must arise by going through the medieval formalities of recalling ambassadors and exchanging ultimatums most of our present-day politicians have made their money in business a form of human competition greatly resembling war to paraphrase Clausewitz. did they when in the throes of such competition send formal notice to their rivals of their plans to get the better of them in commerce did mr carnegie the arch-priest of peace at any price when he built the steel trust notify his competitors when and how he proposed to strike the blows which successively made him master of millions surely the directors of a great nation may consider the interests of their shareholders that is the people they govern as sufficiently serious not to be endangered by the deliberate sacrifice of the predominant position of readiness which generations of self-devotion patriotism and wise forethought have won for them as regards the strictly military side of this work though the recent researches of the french general staff into the records and documents of the napoleonic period have shown conclusively that clausewitz had never grasped the essential point of the great emperor's strategic method yet it is to be admitted that he has completely fathomed the spirit which gave life to the form and notwithstanding 
the variations in application which have resulted from the progress of invention in every field of national activity not in the technical improvements in armament alone this spirit still remains the essential factor in the whole matter indeed if anything modern appliances have intensified its importance for though with equal armaments on both sides the form of battles must always remain the same the facility and certainty of communication which better methods of communicating orders and intelligence have conferred upon the commanders has rendered the control of great masses immeasurably more certain than it was in the past men kill each other at greater distances it is true but killing is a constant factor in all battles the difference between now and then lies in this that thanks to the enormous increase in range the essential feature in modern armaments it is possible to concentrate by surprise on any chosen spot a man-killing power fully twentyfold greater than was conceivable in the days of waterloo and whereas in napoleon's time this concentration of man-killing power which in his hands took the form of the great case-shot attack depended almost entirely on the shape and condition of the ground which might or might not be favourable nowadays such concentration of firepower is almost independent of the country altogether thus at waterloo napoleon was compelled to wait till the ground became firm enough for his guns to gallop over nowadays every gun at his disposal and five times that number had he possessed them might have been opened on any point in the british position he had selected as soon as it became light enough to see or to take a more modern instance viz the battle of some Gravelotte, gravelot eighteen august eighteen seventy where the germans were able to concentrate on both wing batteries of two hundred guns and upwards it would have been practically impossible owing to the section of the slopes of the french position to carry out the old-fashioned case-shot attack at all nowadays there would be no difficulty in turning on the fire of two thousand guns on any point of the position and switching this fire up and down the line like water from a fire engine hose if the occasion demanded such concentration but these alterations in method make no difference in the truth of the picture of war which clausewitz presents with which every soldier and above all every leader should be saturated death wounds suffering and privation remain the same whatever the weapons employed and their reaction on the ultimate nature of man is the same now as in the struggle a century ago it is this reaction that the great commander has to understand and prepare himself to control and the task becomes ever greater as fortunately for humanity the opportunities for gathering experience become more rare in the end and with every improvement in science the result depends more and more on the character of the leader and his power of resisting the sensuous impressions of the battlefield finally for those who would fit themselves in advance for such responsibility i know of no more inspiring advice than that given by krishna to anjuna ages ago when the latter trembled before the awesome responsibility of launching his army against the host of the pandavs this life within all living things my prince hides beyond harm 
scorn thou to suffer then for that which cannot suffer do thy part be mindful of thy name and tremble not nought better can betide a martial soul than lawful war happy the warrior to whom comes joy of battle but if thou shunst this honourable field a kishitria if knowing thy duty and thy task thou bidst duty and task go by that shall be sin and those to come shall speak thee in infamy from age to age but infamy is worse for men of noble blood to bear than death therefore arise thou son of kunti brace thine arm for the conflict nerve thy heart to meet as things are like to thee pleasure or pain profit or ruin victory or defeat so minded gird thee to the fight for so thou shall not sin colonel f n maud c b late r e end of introduction recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia